Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Hump with Katie. I'm your host, Katie Thoreau. And guess what? I have another incredible episode for you today with bassist, TV, and film composer David Schwartz. If you're new to The Hump, this is a series where I interview some of the world's most talented artists and musicians and find out why are they so amazing? How did it all happen? And ultimately, what can we learn from their journey? We've already had some fantastic guests like Larry Grenadier, Christian McBride, Rufus Reed, Paul Ellison, and some amazing non-bassists like Justin Coughlin and Ken Poplowski. You can find all of these episodes and more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can go watch them on YouTube. So go like, subscribe, download, leave a comment, and let me know who you want to hear from next. Before I bring you today's amazing episode, I'd love to thank our sponsors. And first up, we have the clothing company, Jams World. You guys, I absolutely love Jams World. I'm wearing a Jams World right now, of course. And the reason why I love it is because the fabric is made from 100% spun crush rayon and it keeps me cool and comfortable. They've been making clothing in Honolulu, Hawaii since 1964. And the artwork is so unique. It's screen printed right onto the fabric and it looks like a piece of art. Go to jamsworld.com and use the promo code JAZZ15 and you'll get 15% off your entire online purchase. Next up, I'd like to thank Colstein's String Shop. I absolutely love Colstein's. They are doing amazing things for the bass community. They have two amazing locations in Long Island, New York and a killer online store. Go to colstein.com and use the promo code KD10 and you'll get 10% off your entire purchase. All right, I am so ready to bring you today's episode with the stellar, incredible, and just insanely creative David Schwartz. To be honest with you, I am fangirling a little bit on this episode because David Schwartz is the composer for one of my most favorite TV shows, Arrested Development. Of course, he's done many other projects like Northern Exposure, Veep, Deadwood. That's just to name like a very few. This was such a fun conversation. We talked about his early bass beginnings as an electric bass player and some really incredible opportunities that he says he fell into, but he's really talented, so he's quite modest. And we also talked about how he just kind of fell into composing for TV and film. It's really quite fascinating. And I just can't believe that he actually studied with Bob Haggard, like the Bob Haggard who wrote What's New? and Big Noise from Winnetka. It's, this was such a cool conversation. You're going to love it. I really enjoyed talking with David. He's a great composer, and he's very composed himself. This was a lot of fun. So without further ado, here is David Schwartz. Hey, thank you so much, David. This is, this is a thrill. Yeah, this is very special for me. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. How's it going? Great to meet you, by the way. Uh, great to meet you. It's going well. You know, it's a... Uh... It's an interesting time. Work just stopped. I was like in, you know, constant seven days a week work, seven nights. And now I, I always, there's an adjustment period. Yeah, I'm sure you feel that, that when you come off the road. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I'm actually like going through that right now myself. How is that for you? When you, It's like you get down from that high and then you get, I get really low sometimes. I'd like to say I'm a master of it, but it's the opposite. Yeah. Uh, my family can tell you. But the, you know, then after a while my hobbies come back in, I'm having a lot of fun, I don't want to work, and then you get a job. So then exactly. the other adjustment has to happen. Yeah, I, was, I always talk to my friend about this. It's like that time in between going on the road and you have all this time off and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to shed, I'm going to work on this, do this, and then nothing happens and then you got to go back out again. And the next time you're like, I'm going to do better this time. I, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true of a lot of things in life, isn't it? I can do better at everything. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. you know, sometimes somehow everything kind of seems to work out. It does. It does. Um, well, thank you officially for, for being on the show. And uh, 
I won't take up your your whole afternoon, but I'm really excited to to learn more about you and uh, and and it's great that you're a bass player and a, a composing <laughs> bass player too at that. So, yeah. uh, how how did the bass come into your into your life to begin with? Well, you, you know, I, I think the guitar and the Beatles came into my life. And then I said, oh, I want to do that. That seems like a reasonable goal to be the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> and, and I just loved it so much. And I started bands, you know, in my early teenage years. And there were always three guitarists. And um, we had a Tysco bass, which now would be really cool. But uh, we were embarrassed by our Tysco bass. And we had one of our dads. My dad and another dad were graphic artists. And uh, my friend's dad painted a Vox logo on it. So, because we thought that was cool, yeah. and uh, we would share the bass duties. So, you know, each song we'd switch around, and then um, every time I played bass, the other two guitarists would say, "Hey, man, you're really good at bass." Which now, even then, I realized, you know, <laughs> they didn't want to play the thing, but secretly yeah. I loved it. So uh, I asked my father, you know, now I had a guitar that I had worked for and got the money for. It. I said if he would. Um, help me, you know, uh, buy a bass and I'd, I'd pay him back. And he was in a grumpy mood and he said, no, uh, like, you have to earn this one too. And I said, okay. And then like days later, he calls me and he's at Lincoln Center. And this is my father too, very typical of him. He's standing in front of a music store in Lincoln Center and he sees a sitar and he says, I'm looking at the most beautiful thing in the world. It's a sitar. I'm going to buy it and I'm going to get you lessons and you're going to play it. <laughs> That's, a compromise. Said, yeah, That's a really nice offer, but you know, can you just help me with that electric bass? <laughs> yeah. So I did. And then, um, you know, I, I think I came into jazz and upright bass, you know, from electric miles in that period, you mm -hmm. know, the very beginning of his electric thing before really there was fusion and stuff like that. And then I started noticing that those guys were upright players and, I started jamming with these guys who were way more advanced than me and um, and started to think about the upright. But I, still in high school, I wasn't playing upright yet. And uh, my last year of high school, I did. Is that and, where you, you grew up in New York? Yeah, in Long in Island. In the city? Oh, yeah, oh okay. Long Island, mostly in Long Island. Which, which city in Long Island? Uh, Great Neck. Oh, okay. Uh, it has its own baggage with it. So sometimes I just say long how, yeah. <laughs> but, but actually there's some really important parts about Great Neck because a lot of my friends had fathers that were very famous studio musicians. Uh, my best friend, Jerry Block, his father was Sandy Block, who wouldn't be well known except there's video of him playing with Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and, and Max Roach. And, you know, we never even believed Jerry until the YouTuber. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we believed him, but we had never, you know, seeing it is, is different. <laughs> And, and I saw it. And then uh, my first uh, high school sort of girlfriend was Heidi Glow, and her father was Bernie Glow, who was probably, you know, one of the greatest studio trumpet players of all time. I mean, he played on all the Aretha records, but he played on Miles Davis' Sketches of Spain. So when Miles wanted a trumpet player, I mean, he's legendary. You can speak to the surviving members of that era of studio, and, and they'll cry about Bernie. Mm. Now, to me... I was mainly afraid of him because he was my 15-year-old girlfriend's <laughs> And, you know, I, I wish I had known how to ask these people to be my mentor. But in ways, you know, like I was working to get a stereo system that summer. And he says, no, you're going to get it from my guy. Mm. You know, and like I still had to earn the money. And then he set me up with his guy. But then at one particular dinner, and I was still kind of afraid of him, I said, I'm going to try to play the upright bass because I 
you know, I felt I was an expert electric bass, yeah. not true at all. He says, well, then I'm getting you a teacher. And, and he got me Bob Haggard, wow. you know, who's uh, one of the cool. greatest of all time. And Bob wrote What's New and of Big Noise. Yeah. And uh, so I took the train three stops and I got off. And Bob didn't know what to do with me. He had never had a student, but he said, because Bernie asked, he was going to do it, you know, which is really touching when if I look back at it now. And so he says, you want a salami sandwich? So that, to me, is a great teacher, right? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm a vegetarian, but then the salami sandwich. And we sat there for hours, you know, and he said, well, I've never really taught, but I wrote this book, so we'll study out of my book. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that year, um, well, I should include my other teacher, too, because my camp counselor at that time was Johnny Miller, who is still probably the biggest theater contractor in New York and a wonderful bass player and a wonderful character. And um, he really encouraged me to play bass. And we do a thing at camp where the counselors were great musicians from New York and they would play like sing, they called it, but they would just pull tunes out of the air and they would just play them and improvise them. And they'd usually invite one of us up on stage. And, you know, we were 14 year olds at the time and just had to play by ear. And I think it's the way I've always continued from there, you know, like, oh, I can probably figure out what the next chord is or watch the guitarist's hands or something like that. So um, so in my senior year of high school, I played upright and I played in the school orchestra and I really couldn't read. But the kid next to me couldn't play, but he could read. So <laughs> the two of us were one sort yeah. of <laughs> below average bass player together. Uh, and uh, and then I went to Berkeley Actually, I went, my first year was to the School of Visual Arts, and my whole family are visual artists. Mm. And I went as a photography major. And at the end of that year, my parents were splitting up, and I didn't want to, like, live the rest of my life in a dark room by myself, you know, Mm -hmm. was sort of my feelings. I didn't realize that music was really leading to that same dark room. I I now have a very light studio. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But for the first 10 years of studios, you know, it was very similar to a dark room by myself, except there's... You know, I always had musicians coming in, so that's the great joy. Yeah. And then, so when I went to Berkeley, um, they, it was the first year they had electric bass, and they accidentally put me in the upright department. And I got the head of the department, another accident, Bill Curtis, who was just a wonderful man. And sort of, uh, as my parents were breaking up, he was just very comforting and sort of mm. a father figure. And, you know, Bill taught everything. I, I think he was more of a arco classical player and he sort of knew everyone in boston and at that first lesson he said well you know you haven't played very long but you can play you should stay here because we don't know what's going to happen with electric bass and if anyone can teach it you know that was sort sort of the feeling at the time yeah and so i stayed with bill which was a great decision and he even encouraged me to uh go over to new england conservatory he thought like Hmm. i had a future with the ball which could be argued a lot but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's too hard a future. I did run over there. I didn't make... Well, they had a jazz department there, and I didn't make it into there, and I stayed at Berkeley. But uh, I did play in a New England Conservatory Orchestra, and my stand partner was Ed Barker, who was... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was about my age at the time, 20 or something like that. And then a couple of years later, he auditioned, and he's been the principal of the BSO. Yep. I haven't seen Ed of that, so if Ed, if you're seeing this, I, I, mm-hmm. I owe you a lot, because he would say, well... Dave's all right. He's a jazz guy, but he can bow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I stayed in the orchestra. And you know when you have that feeling, like there's the young Ed Barker next to me. I said, 
this guy's better than us. Yeah. <laughs> just You could just hear it. You could feel it. He was moving there. And I don't know whether they made me his stand partner because the numbers are, you know, put the weakest guy with. I, I don't know what that was, but I, I'll choose to think that I once played and understand with him. And it was um, the Boston Civic Symphony. And we had great conductors and it really was a good orchestra. So that was probably the most orchestra playing I ever did. And then even, even like all all this while has uh, I mean because you write music for t- TV and film now did, had that entered your your awareness at all up until this point? No, uh, my mother would suggest it. Really? <laughs> no, it really didn't. You know, I, I I see it as a period of accidents and didn't consider Plan Bs and and becoming a composer was definitely a series of accidents. And then after I did my first composing job then I said, oh, this is good. I want to do it. And I had no idea how ridiculously hard it was. And I felt that the things I was trying to succeed at, which was being a session player in Los Angeles or being a producer because I had my own studio, they said, well, this seems hard enough. Why, you know, try something else? But I had breaks very early on. It hasn't always been a straight road or a smooth road. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I was just wondering if you're one of those kids that like was glued to the the movie, like the TV screen during the credits or something. I don't think I noticed the scores to movies at all. <laughs> you know, like maybe afterwards I'd hear a record or something like that. And I realized, oh, that's a great score. But I, I, you know, like so many of my peer group are the John Williams camp, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves John Williams and he's the greatest of our, our generation. But I always sort of was attracted to stuff that was odder and different and and uh didn't really notice the score so much and again i think i came from the beatles and sam and dave and motown and i really loved orchestral music and listened to a lot of it but and playing in that orchestra even that couple of years at berkeley that was incredible and i didn't realize how moving that was to sit in the back of a section mm-hmm. but the one funny thing is that like you know if you're used to time in a rhythm section mm-hmm. and then versus time in an orchestra. And I go like, what are you guys waiting for? I know, right? <laughs> Did you see that stick come down? Yeah, let's <laughs> go. It's a wave that comes from the violins and the conductor, you know, and then finally like, you know, yeah, and if yeah. you're playing in, in rhythm section time, you're rushing, you know, mm-hmm. at least it seems that way. And, and different conductors have such different beats, you know. I know. I know. Here in Los Angeles, I think we've been really fortunate. Not that I've ever played in either, but, you know, Esapeka and and Dudamel, you know, they're two of the most clear to see. Straightforward, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Where some guys, you just go like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so you, you complete, did you finish at Berkeley? No, no. Uh, oh, this is good. Uh <laughs> Good no, n- none of the great people finished Berkeley. Well, it was kind of, uh, you know, you didn't want to finish there. Yeah. You, then, I, I think it's very much changed now. And, you know, now I've hired a lot of people out of Berkeley and they have totally different skills than I had at the time. But uh, I took a weird gig. Uh, Chip Jackson, the New York mm-hmm. bass player, um, said to me, hey, man, uh, I got to do this thing with Buddy Rich will you cover my last two weeks on the Glenn Miller Orchestra? And I go like, okay, man, you know, and like having no understanding. And, and it's funny because I've written so much swing music in my writing career, and I did not have a clue of what that beat felt like mm. playing in two 
they're just the way it's orchestrated, everything about it. And um, I started out by uh, getting two hours late to the bus. <laughs> I stayed with a friend in Philadelphia. It was like, you know, those nightmares where you're late. Oh, Probably yeah, wasn't yeah. two hours. It just felt like two hours. But basically, I was really unpopular on the bus for the first couple of days until mm -hmm. I made it up. And these guys were living in the bus. Like, yeah, I yeah. put my bass down, and the and guy goes, that's my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was my start there. And um, we drove. So I got on the bus, uh, and we drove, like, through the night and sort of fell asleep and a drool coming down me. And some guy sort of punches me and hands me a ruffled shirt. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm 6'2", and it was a extra small you know and uh and i'm trying to put on a blue tuxedo jacket thing and i get out of the bus and i'm carrying my base and i'm carrying something else in my other hand and the bus driver yells at me and says like no you got to take your amp and i said i have an amp <laughs> you know and so under the under the bus was um a b15 uh i don't know if you ever use a b15 they're big and they're clumsy and if they only have three wheels they're really clumsy so this was the three-wheeled B-15, and uh, it was a, very much a southern country club. I think we drove from Philadelphia to Alabama. I don't know if that's even possible. But we, were, we were in the deep south, and it felt that way. And everyone was wearing white tuxedos, and we were wearing our blue tuxedos. And uh, by the time I got on the bandstand, I was totally soaked in sweat, trying to, you know, from the nerves and... <laughs> And someone puts this giant box in front of me, and I'm clueless. And then some guy standing in front of the, the manager of the big band is going like, 436, yeah. 115, 57. You get where I'm going, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm still, you know, trying to get my sound or something like that, you know. And Alan Zavad was a big piano player. He says, these are the charts. And he, he runs over, and he opens the box, and... Dust flies up, more than dust. Parts of the, you know, Moonlight Serenade, the famous, they're falling apart and they're marked up with tape. And it, and they're, oh, and I guess the guy who had left, not Chip Jackson, but the guy who we were replacing, Chip and I, mm -hmm. um, was mad and he, no, no chart was in order and there were 500 charts. Nice. So basically I was back in my camp band again. Yeah. <laughs> playing by here and um oh god great clarinet player was leading the band at the time i, I can't remember eddie you know who i'm talking about eddie anyway. daniels yeah it was Eddie. yeah and he, he was unbelievably good and the rest of the rhythm section had come on that night and they were all my age and we didn't have a clue and i could tell it was pretty terrible mm -hmm. and i you know I, on the stand i'm thinking like well i'm just gonna shed all night and figure this out whatever we got off stage and there's two women in their 50s or 60s and they're crying and they come up to me and they said that was the most beautiful thing what was glenn like glenn miller oh my god and, <laughs> and, I, said, and I had hair down to here at this time yeah. and, here, you know? <laughs> and i said i'm sorry i didn't know him he died the year i was born you know uh, uh crossing the english channel that much yeah. i knew and uh i do remember I, I oh i turned 21 on that gig all by myself i was in a hotel room and somewhere um Knoxville, Tennessee. It's kind of depressing and, uh, sometimes. Very depressing. And, uh, you know, these guys were drinking hard and not yeah. my buddies. And they were nice. And But towards the end of my two-week run, we started doing quartet numbers with Eddie Daniels. And that, to me, was okay. Mm -hmm. he, he lets us do that. And he was so good. So that was pretty inspiring. Was, was this so your first road gig? Uh, yeah, it must have been. 
Yeah, which is funny because I it wasn't the music that I you know I expected I'd be doing an electric bass with a R and B or a rock band and you know. Did the two weeks feel longer than two weeks? <laughs> I can't remember anymore. At first, the first three days felt like two weeks, and then by the end, I, I would like it to go on. But you know, it was Chip's gig, and he took it. And I went back to Boston, but I don't think I went back to Berkeley after that. Yeah. And then you know, I started to take other gigs that took me on the road. And you know, I was figured, oh, I got my two years in. You know, and I played a lot in Boston, lots mm-hmm. of different kinds of bands, and. There was a lot of experience to be had there. And I felt, probably incorrectly, well, Boston's so competitive, might as well go to New York. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're both very competitive. And and they're both big music towns, but you know, New York's harder. And in New York, I just did different road gigs. Uh, what am I teaching here? Um, I wanted to talk about some of the other teachers. No, I'm covering it. Oh, I had a little bit of lessons with John Neves, or Neves. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how he says his name, but he was like sort of a jazz legend. And there are teachers who, you know, break you down from the beginning and make your hand the right yeah. way. And, and there's teachers sort of, oh, let's hang, man. You know, yeah, and yeah, John yeah. was that kind, which is a, another great, you know, if you have both, you're really lucky. Yeah. Because here you're hanging with a cat who had done it and really had swing and you could listen to him. And if you're smart, you could pick up what he was doing. So he was great. I, I think I just had him like maybe 10 lessons during one semester in Berkeley. Mm. And, um, but, you know, there were people coming into school like Pat Matheny. I think Pat was already teaching when he came in and Bob Moses. Um, Bob, I recently met again after Berkeley. I didn't, uh, because Thomas Morgan barred a bass from me and did a gig at the Blue Well in LA. Mm-hmm. And I just love Thomas. Um, he's so interesting. I don't know if he could do an interview because he barely speaks. <laughs> he certainly speaks through his, and when he does, it's profound. Yeah. You're just sort of waiting for him to say something. And uh, he's such an interesting bass player. So uh, I, I went down that night, and usually I can't even leave when I mm-hmm. lend someone a bass. I don't get to go to the show. Yeah. But I did, and I had dinner with him and Bob Moses. And I remember telling Bob that he came up to me in Berkeley and he says, really? He says, what did I say? I said, well, Bob said to me, oh, you play really nicely. You could relax more. And I said, I've been working on that (laughs) since then. And he says, yeah, we all do. And uh, it's, it's the lesson that you, you know, every day after, you know, and, and in anything you do, you know, if you can relax your hands and relax your shoulders and breathe, they're all important things. Yeah, it's kind of that, not to get heady, but that awareness in the moment, just kind of being able to step outside of yourself and kind of examine it while it's happening. Well, you do something I could never do. You sing and play at the same time. So does that help with the relaxing or? Because yeah, you don't there's, have enough there's, no other, there's no other room to do anything else. That's what I'm thinking. You just you have know? to be. Yeah, because you're doing two very important things, you know, and uh, if you start thinking one of them's, least oh, one yeah. of them yeah you just gotta but you've always been that way you've, you've always played while you sang right i uh not to talk about me but uh i i did oh, them that's... separately and then i i started combining them when i was like 15 just to be able to practice so i and i could of course play piano and like play a root and sing the chord on top of it because i was learning mm-hmm. harmony but 
I was studying with Tierney Sutton at the time, and she was like, just play the root on the bass and then just sing the rest of the chord on top of it. So I would just practice it that way, and then I would just slowly start, just because, start singing songs and playing at the same time. That's awesome. If, if there's one advice that I give to people when they ask, I say, just learn to sing and play. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't have to be the greatest singer, but if you can sing background, that gives you so many other choices for gigs to get, you know. And well, and as a bass player, it really helps you understand how to accompany vocalists. Right, right. Yeah. I didn't understand that until I started accompanying my own daughter. Mm-hmm. And I never sang in a band until I was in her band. She said, you can sing. And, and then I realized the one song I was singing on, I didn't have to play. So, so I still haven't gotten past that hump. Sorry to use the word there, but uh, the um, uh, yeah. So if I were to start again, maybe I should still work on it, singing and playing. Because I've sung on records, I've sung on television. I'm not a great singer, but I have a certain character to my voice that works. Mm-hmm. Um, I will get to that later. But the the final moment in the good place. I wrote a song with the creator of it and I sang the whole song and I had a great singer there who I work with a lot and he co-wrote the song with me, uh, Gabriel Mann, who used to work for me and now is a very, very successful composer. And he said, no, you got to sing it. This is just the song that's right for you. So that rarely happens. Mm. So it was fun. And my friends don't know it's me, you know. I also have about certain instruments like harmonica. I have a one take rule. I get it in one or... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it's get a lot worse, you know, where I'll torture myself on instruments that I know how to play well, like the upright yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Definitely. Isn't that well, funny? You can do a guitar track and just go like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. We can really, really get into it. Um, well, let, let's get into into the composing side of things, how that, I'm, okay. sh- I'm sure it chronologically kind but, of But I have works. two small points. Uh, Olivier, I don't know how to say his name, who is... Uh, the great um, French-Canadian bass player. Yeah. What he does with playing and singing and and playing two instruments, he's... Yeah. That's he's, another level. I just love his playing, and he's so free, and and, yeah. uh, and uh, everything about him, his accent, it's all great. Yeah, I know, uh, right? And he's definitely I, got that gypsy uh, personality, like nomadic and everything. And he gets such great sound, even when he's mainly just hammering. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I have other points to make too. Like when you all do, what, what's the, 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 I forget the name of the, uh, Discover Double Bass, right? Oh, yeah. So that's a really interesting thing to me, just from the point that you all play his bass. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that because uh, th- that is pretty cool. And you and probably don't go there and change sound. things. And, and you all sound great on it and all yeah. very different. So it's that, you know, that lesson another lesson that we all have to, and I haven't gotten there yet. I'll still, you know, I should try another bass, you know, but it doesn't matter. You know, um, John Patitucci playing my bass sounds like John and me playing his bass sounds like me. So, uh, and I will say that I did study with Dave Holland too. So after, after New York, I moved to Woodstock and I was in the band, uh, with Robbie, uh, Robbie Dupree and then in John Hall's bands, two bands that Mm -hmm. were, I mean, John created Orleans and then he broke up and he asked me to start, you know, be the first player in his band. But during that time, I was, you know, touring all the time with the electric bass and I would try to bring, you know, an electric upright or something on the bus and get great grief from the... Yeah. Because the bus was our van, you know, and yeah. didn't had beanbag furniture and <laughs> you know, didn't have seats. But uh, Dave Holland lived nearby and I loved Dave so much and... 
I think I had eight to 10 lessons with him. He was touring a lot and I was, but he was that other kind of teacher. He made me start like one note at a time with the right hand, not playing anything else and breathing and um, standing with your knees, not locked and Mm -hmm. balancing. And he'd really thought it out and he had a curriculum. It's funny because he is the freest jazz player, right? Right. So he had a lot of rules that he eventually broke. Um, and uh, it was really wonderful, but I wish I'd had more time to study with him. And then I took in the city, like one lesson with Eddie Gomez. And Eddie was, mm. again, that other thing. Hey, man, let's jam. Here, you play my bass. I'll play yours. Yeah. No. When will I ever get that opportunity again? And I'm sure, you know, people who studied with Eddie for a long time, you know, at some point, curriculum has to come in or something, or at least tunes or something. Yeah. Maybe not. I don't know. But, uh, and, uh, yeah. And I will say that when I started to get into jazz, I would go three or four nights a week to the Village Vanguard hmm. and see Eddie play with Bill Evans. And, you know, I was so into the original Scott LaFaro trio, as many of us were, and that was a big shaping thing. But you could nurse a drink at the back of the Vanguard while the real patients were eating giant porterhouse steaks, you know, like 30 inches from yeah. Bill Evans' hands, you know. And... uh Bill was not in his finest shape. I think he was on a methadone program that year in when, New York. When was that, like mid-70s? Mid Early 70s. Early 70s, yeah. And we'd just drive in from Long Island with a couple of friends and just sit there and nurse one drink for a few hours, see a few sets. And Eddie and uh, Marty Morell was the drummer in those years. And, uh, and sometimes just other drummers would come and sit in, and occasionally mm-hmm. another bass player would just take the night, and they'd have to just know Bill's mm-hmm. incredible set list and material. So wow. where did I just distract us from? So we went through the, my last of my upright bass teachers. Yeah, and, no, that's amazing, though, to see uh, Bill Evans. No, it was incredible. And then I saw him right when I moved to L.A. in 1980. He played a place mid-L.A. I can't remember the name of it. And he was totally healthy again, or seemed to be. And it was with Mark Johnson and Joe LaBarbera. I'm remembering names. That's pretty good. So, uh, <laughs> and that was like seeing the original trip they, yeah. they were having a magical night that was magic. just stunning and then bill died like two or three weeks after that i was mm-hmm. so shocked um and i know his son a little bit evan evans mm-hmm. who's a composer here in la i haven't seen him in a long time um so what was your next question you talk about composing yeah like how how that came into play so you're you're on the road with different bands and yeah, well, then um, I came out here with John Hall. Our first two nights were playing the Greek Theater and the Roxy. And I thought, oh, I'll just move here and it'll be like that. <laughs> you know? Oh, wait, I do have to ask one question. How, okay, sure. how did your parents feel about everything? My parents were both artists and they didn't really understand music. They would say it all the time. But, you know, they were on they had to accept that I was an artist, too, in that way. So they were very supportive and, and really wonderful. My sister's an artist and. And, uh, but my father would, um, he would try to help me. And I was very bad at taking help from people. Mm. Like anyone who wants to help me now, I'll take it. But <laughs> then, then, uh, no, I, I, I just didn't, you know, I had to do things on my own. So my father felt like he was an artist and a successful commercial artist too. Like he did the package design for companies like Revlon and even Coca-Cola and stuff like that. But he wanted to help me. So it turns out um, uh, Mr. Revson was the head of Revlon, right? Mm -hmm. And he was a jazz fan. And they used to have 
jam sessions. This is back when I was 15 again in, in the Revlon building, which is this, you know, actually my father had helped design the building. It was this futuristic. It looked like a spaceship and my father's art was everywhere. And so he got me invited to the jam session, which was supposed to have Cary Grant on piano. So uh, wow. uh, the boss's two big friends were Joe Namath and Cary Grant, neither who I ever met. But mm-hmm. so uh, Cary didn't show up for the gig, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I brought my friend Leon and drums and we thought we played jazz, but we didn't. We really played blues. And there was no common ground. I don't know if we ever played anything we tried. And they probably just thought, oh, these kids. They were very nice to us. And, uh, you know, we probably got free sodas or something like that. <laughs> so uh, my father would try to help, but he, he didn't know what to do. And he would find the harshness of the freelance musician's life in New York hard for him to handle. Mm-hmm. He'd be very sensitive about it. And I said, hey, you know, it happened to me, not you. But yeah. so they were okay about it. Uh, and my mother was super supportive, and that was nice to have. And, you know, like any parent, they wonder, you know, are you ever going to make a living? Yeah. And those kind of things. And it took a long time. I mean, I, you know, I had a couple of okay road gigs while they lasted. I made a decent salary for those days. And then I really wasn't a composer until I was 38. And mm-hmm. that's the age they retire most composers. So yeah. <laughs> the fact that I had a long career after that is, is pretty great. Yeah. So I moved here in 1980 and it was the only time in my life that I had to have like sales jobs and driving jobs because I always had music jobs. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a harsh reality because yeah. you know, I'd come out here, play the Greek theater and all the people backstage was like, we need a guy like you. We need New York bass players. You should come out. There's plenty of work. But uh, 1980, sort of the music business had a big crash and L.A. was... Uh, having the mudslides of 80. It's amazing we stayed. Uh, I was already with my now wife. We weren't married yet, and Jody, And we both liked it. From, mm-hmm. And we left our family, so it was a lot. And um, uh, I didn't want to take auditions from, like, the newspaper because they were usually, you know, kids in Orange County. I'm yeah. sorry, I don't mean to insult your homeland. But no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm originally from Chatsworth. Okay. All right. That's different. But I went to one of those things, one of these auditions with my wife and uh, we got there and like, I was now 27 and, you know, a bunch of teenagers came out and they were, I had a polytone amp, you know, uh, and they were going, where's your amp, man? (laughs) And they were like metalheads and so that didn't work. And then the second time I did it, it was, um, oh, Missing Persons with Terry Bozio, one of the great drummers in the universe. And I said, well, this I'll audition for. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to the audition. There were maybe uh, 20 people already waiting at the very beginning of it at a rehearsal place in West L.A. And I don't know why I said this. And it was kind of true. I said, like, hey, man, I got I got a lot of things to do. Can I be first? <laughs> and I was close to first. They said, sure. And just magic happened. The, the, the rhythm section was um, it's just one of those feelings like you get mm-hmm. with a drummer and it just hooked up and it was just great you know it's definitely electric bass and it was wild and it was sort of instrumental fusion and dale bozio who became the star of the band came out and did two songs but she wasn't like at that point it was more of an instrumental band that sometimes Mm -hmm. featured dale and i was so excited about it and i was also very shy about really expressing that but when i got back i left them a voicemail you know uh 
And I said, I don't know what you guys felt, but I would do anything to be in this band. Mm. I just thought it was the greatest, and I hope you feel the same. And at midnight, they called me back, and they said, we ended up auditioning another 50 bass players, and you're the guy. Will you please come help us audition piano players the next day? Wow. didn't tell you the story because they really are nice guys, but I didn't hear from them again <laughs> uh, for two weeks or a week at least. And yeah. then um, Terry called me up and said, hey, Dave, you know, you really were the best guy. We, we, we just got overwhelmed with the amount of people who wanted the gig. And so we kept on auditioning for days and we probably should have gotten back to you. But now we have an opportunity to get our old bass player from San Francisco and a keyboard player together as a pair. So will you come down tomorrow morning and audition against both of them? So wow. <laughs> it didn't go well. Yeah. I, none of the magic was there. I played terribly and uh, that was the end of it. But what a different life that would have been. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I'm, I'm not unhappy with the one I have. So um, maybe after, you know, oh, I was in different bands, Michael Ruff's band, which was sort of an important band. A lot of great players came through it. Um, my fellow composer, Snuffy Walden, was in the band. And one day he just got this job scoring 30 something. And I, sort of thing i wonder what that would be like you know yeah. uh don perry or ralph humphreys or sometimes vinnie Colliata uh were the drummers and michael was the kind of band leader who would show up 20 minutes late and change all the keys and now it's a samba and it yeah, was yeah. a waltz and it was great i love that you know it was like being back in camp again you know yeah. just like go with it. And he had great background saying, it's, it's a big band to be that free with, you know? Um, and um, so that was really exciting. And then I was in Fonda Shepherd's band and, but it, you know, work was my studio work. At first, you know, I would rent out my studio and sometimes produce usually engineer was, it was sort of supporting us with my mm -hmm. wife working and stuff like that. But then all my really good clients started getting their own studios. Hmm. And, you know, I was left with clients not so good, let's say that, or a mixture. And it became really hard, and I was starting to look for plan B. And uh, a friend of mine, DJ Webster, and his wife, Julie Webster, at the time, uh, was going to finance his own movie. He had been very successful hmm. uh, making music videos in the early days of MTV, so he had some budget. And... Well, he didn't have budget for me. That's that's mm -hmm. never the case. Yeah, yeah. So it was like I don't know how long. I don't I don't have a copy of the movie. She does, Julie. I'm still really close with her. He passed away, but uh, so we decided that for my budget we would split a Roland sampler. Uh, there's one of them back there, but this is a more mi minor dead now. But this was like it was like an eleven hundred dollar sampler. So he chipped in five fifty, and I paid the other five fifty, and that was my salary. <laughs> And and uh, and I didn't have a clue, but a lot of people really loved that score. And he would bring his editor, and she was so hard. She was like, "You don't really know what you're doing, do you? Like you're supposed to hit the cuts." I said, "Oh, really?" <laughs> so, but it, the score came out well, although I haven't seen it since I did it. Um, and he showed it to about twenty people, maybe fifty, and then. He ran out of budget on it and he got a job like directing some kind of low budget movie and he sort of had to abandon it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but at that point, I realized, you know, this is what I want to do as strongly as mm -hmm. someone like me could say that. And yeah. how do you go about doing that? So then it was you make a reel of your music, which was basically, I never wrote, I wasn't a songwriter either. I mm -hmm. should say that, you know, like, 
because it wasn't as good as the Beatles or Miles Davis or Stravinsky. Yeah, so yeah. why should I finish it kind of feeling, mm. you know? And it's funny because I don't feel I'm a perfectionist that way now, but maybe TV taught me that because you just, you got seven days at most, sometimes four, and then you go yeah. on to the next show. So you have to say, this is good. <laughs> and, or if it's not good, you make it good. And you know, that's sort of the way. So, um, <clears throat> I guess one of those people um, who saw DJ's movie before he gave up on it, um, she called me up like this is a year and a half later. So, oh, so first I made these cassettes and I sent, I got a list from the Hollywood Reporter or something like that, or Music Connection. And I sent out a hundred cassettes, actual cassettes, mm -hmm. which are back now. I understand like having a cassette release is really hip now. Mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> so I sent them out. And of course there was no answers at all and uh the guy oh because i was producing a young kid at the time whose father had been um head of capitol records mm -hmm. had signed the beatles the band and the beach boys and he liked the production of my of his son that i did he says let me help you out and now i'm learning to take help you know yeah. my father had already passed away and uh <clears throat> and i said sure and he says, I'm going to send this to Stan Melander, who's, you know, the biggest agent in town at the time. And so I would call dutifully, which is the hardest thing for me to do every two weeks. And he had a secretary who would call me Hun, mm. which is, you know, does, does that exist anymore? Is that Hollywood there anymore? He says, I don't know, Hun. He's very busy. You know, I'm sure your music is great, but he's probably never going to listen to it was, mm. was sort of the thing. And uh, so... I'll just tell the code of this story to, to wrap it up. But a friend of mine called me after going to a lecture at BMI. Stan Melander was talking about how you get into the business. And someone asked him, well, how do you find new composers? And this is after my first show. I'm skipping ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, Northern Exposure became really, really big. Yeah. And, and Stan just very nicely said to this person in the audience who uh, asked, where do you find new composers? He says, I don't know. It rarely happens. He says, but I wish someone had shown me David Schwartz before he became really big. Hmm. So my tape was on his desk That's right. <laughs> for a really long time. And, and I've met him and we've laughed about it because it's, you know, sort of the way it is until you're known, you mm -hmm. know, that everybody's interested to an extent. Uh, so around that time, Cheryl Block, uh, who was really good friends, I had met her with DJ, the director and his wife, Julie. And she called me up, I got this show, we've tried everybody in town. I liked your music from Skeeter's Wings, which was the name of the little film. Do you want to try to write something for it? And I said, okay, well, we need it today. So that's, you know, that yeah. still is the, every job in, in television is we need it today. Mm. And uh, so I said, yeah, sure, you know. And then like minutes later, um, a courier from CAA or one of the big agencies shows up with a script, you know, and that's all I had. And I said, oh, this must be <laughs> serious. Yeah. <laughs> they have couriers and PAs. And and <clears throat> I don't remember where the process, but I wrote the Northern Exposure theme. And, it's, and I thought it was really weird. I couldn't get with it in my own ear. It just sounded like, didn't sound like TV. It sounded too weird to me. So I wrote what sounded like probably, I wish I had that one, the mm -hmm. one that didn't work, because it sounded like, to me, what I remember, like a game show theme or something like that, mm. you know. And uh, and the next day, Cheryl shows up in my little garage studio, and um, 
I play her the wrong one, you know, and to this day, Cheryl is still like, oh, no, that's no good. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is like, she says, it may, may not have been quite as harsh that, but I could see in her eyes that, you know, I had just blown the big opportunity. She says, you have anything else? And I said, yeah, this is the one I wrote first. She says, oh, that's really good. Let me play it to Josh. And Josh Brand created Northern Exposure. And nobody knew anything about this show or what would happen. It was then called North to the Future. Hmm. And they were very, very attached to a David Byrne from Talking Heads song called this little town this old town mm -hmm. i'm going like well i'll probably choose that one you know yeah. <laughs> that seems that's what i would do and um and then she called me up a week later she said we're using your theme and i said wow that's so amazing that's fantastic and then she says look so you know we're going to start tomorrow can you be here mm -hmm. and i really didn't know what she was talking about because yeah, i didn't yeah. realize that having the theme in this case and it often doesn't um i was going to be the composer for the show so I, I couldn't have been more green despite my advanced age at the time. Uh, and I didn't know the words. I didn't know anything. And I just decided, like, well, that would be my position. I'd just say I don't know yeah. <laughs> and hope it worked. And um, so we went in and, and we spotted the show, which is for people who don't know, you get to together with the creators of the show, either the director or the producer, in this case the producers in television. And we looked at every spot that needs music. And now I know to ask for, what do you want emotionally here? Mm -hmm. And they'd often say like, well, it's kind of dark. Can you add something that makes it a little lighter or maybe even slightly funny you know, mm. or, or fun? We, we'd never say funny, really. We'd say fun more often. Or they go like, I don't know, we just didn't get this shot. or We didn't get the actress performance here. What can you do? Mm. I didn't really have the experience to know. Yeah. So I went back to my studio and worked around the clock for three or four days. And, you know, this was my big, you know, Oscar winning film score moment and way overwrote. And uh, oh. Shaw came in. I think they all came in this time. The, the two creators of the show, uh, John Falsey and John Brandt, and a bunch of, you know, younger producers and stuff. And everyone was going, no, that's wrong. <laughs> Each of the first nine cues. They rejected. And I mm -hmm. said, look, I can see this is not going well. You know, can I have another, you know, 12 to 48 hours and I'll rewrite? And they said, well, let's hear the last cue anyway. And they loved that. Yeah. So now I had one win there. Okay. And I wrote a couple of other, other things. And we actually used the theme itself inside the show as cues mm -hmm. uh, as part of the score, which never happened again. And I don't think it's ever happened on any other show that I've ever done. A lot of shows do do that. And yeah, it's, yeah. you know, especially in comedies, it happens. But, so, and Northern was a very unique show. It's, it was an hour-long show that was really one of the first dramedies. You know, it had just mm -hmm. as much drama as it had comedy. It was totally... And, and that's a lot of music to write for an hour-long show. It's a lot more now. Yeah. Now, an hour-long show is an hour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or a network hour-long show is usually 41 or 43 yeah. minutes. And you could write more than the length of it with giving options and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think... Back then, it was 12, 14 minutes. But as the show went on, they would ask me to write stuff that was on the jukebox. So there was a jukebox mm -hmm. in, in, in the bar in the town. And then Chris, the DJ, on the morning radio show would play records. And if it was instrumental, after a while, it was usually me. So I got to write like Duke Ellington or <laughs> Django or classical stuff and had players to perform it. It was really a great school. And I 
to this day, I mean, the shows I'm doing now, they usually don't ask me to write like radio source or mm-hmm. unusual. And um, sometimes I say, you know, I could do that. And sometimes I don't, you know, depending on if I think they're going to like that or yeah. you know, have it original. And it was an incredible experience. So I learned to write every kind of music. And Northern, every producer on that had incredible musical taste and knew about, you know, um, two of the producers asked if I could write something like Alvin Berg. And I'm going like, really? (laughs) And Coltrane was one reference because the characters sort of had that in their life. So, um, is that more helpful for you when the producer is more knowledgeable, or is it can it be a little bit more well, baggage? It can be both. Uh, I learned a lot from them, and 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 then a couple of shows after that, I won't name the person, but the producer was like, I played back a piece, it was here in the studio that never happens anymore, no one ever comes to your studio, or at least mine. Um, or it's rare if I do a film, sometimes the director will show up, but. Uh, I was playing it for this guy and uh, he was really liking it. He says, you know, you really had me until you went to that A minor seven flat five. And that just threw me for the rest of the Because <laughs> he asked me oh. something an hour later. I said, I- I- I'm still can't get over the fact that you said A minor seven. <laughs> and yeah. it really, you know, I had to get past that, you know, yeah. because it's better, you know, if someone says, oh, can you make it more blue or like, yeah. It got a little dark there. Can we, you know, do something about that? A little that? too diminished. A little, yeah. you know, and then there are producers like Mike Sher who created The Good Place. One of the first things he told me when I was meeting them to try to get the job, and I didn't know I had it, uh, we should probably tell you we don't like music. Uh, we don't use it in our shows. We don't know what to do with it. Turns out he's a huge fan of music and knows everything about every kind of music. And, you know, I would always kid him because he just, you know, he would make up musical terms, but he really does know a tremendous amount, you know. Most of these people are just smarter than you can imagine, you know, to get to that. Yeah, point. I mean that—that's what we kind of hope. Um, yeah. I definitely want to talk about some spe- some more specific shows, but how do you deal with um, um, deadlines in general? Like, at, like especially at that time, like, what was what was the timeline from writing episode to episode? Um. Yeah, it was a crazy time. My daughter was just born, so I sort of associate that with the success and the career change. When my son was born a few years before that, I, I made my garage into a 24-track studio, and that was successful until um, until composing came along. The deadline, it's, it's unimaginable. It's so harsh, you know? But then afterwards, you sort of thrive on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, for years, people ask me, well, what do you write when you don't have a deadline? And I go like, I don't, you know, and then I had long periods where I didn't work and I missed writing and I started to do it. Um, Yeah, you just, well, I I called up Snuffy Walden because I had been in bands with him and uh, I said, Snuffy, what do I do? He said, well, call these people, you know, they'll Mm -hmm. be your agents, maybe. They're not taking people now. I said, no, I mean, how do I write this amount of music? He says, oh, you'll just do it. And I go, is yeah. that really the best you have? He says, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> and I always tell him he was right about that because, you know, it's either that or failure. And so if you don't want failure, you have to get there. And I've worked along some great musicians who I thought could do the job much better than me. They were geniuses at the piano and uh, 
could hear a whole arrangement and play it in their hands and do all these skills. I'm not much of a piano player. I don't, had the skills I thought that were necessary mm -hmm. to do the job. And they had a really hard time with the deadline and the politics and the culture of a TV show, which is mm -hmm. slightly different than doing a film. But because TV is just relentless, it just doesn't stop. And by yeah, the end yeah. of the season, you can see it on all the people, not just the music team, but, you know, um, you know, just it was a point in that first season of, of Northern Exposure where Josh made a pronounced because a few of us had had car accidents and Martin, the young producer who was sort of head of music, got like tried to stop a robbery in an AM PM at two in the morning and, and got a, a mild knife. You know, it wasn't a full <laughs> stabbing, but he was bleeding. And he says, you know what? Everybody's got to sleep and go home, which was yeah. incredible for its time. And I, I couldn't. I don't think the people I work with realize that even now I'm working seven days, seven nights. Because yeah. at the shows, they have unions and they don't work on the weekends and I can't find anybody. And I always think I can do it faster, but it's pretty hard. Some shows are. It just depends on what it is, you know. Well, I think, I mean, in my experience, every every composer I know, they could be the most organized person in the world, but it's just something about that. You're, you're working right, if it's due at, you know, 8 a.m., you're working right up until 8 a.m. It doesn't matter. Well, that thing, you will fill in the time, but I feel like I'm not doing that. I'm not adding extra. But conversely, there are times where someone's called me up and said, we need one more cue and we're coming up over now, you know, and... 15 minutes later, I have something that's great. It might take me all of the next day to finish it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I find that inspiration part is can be is usually fast for me, and that's the easiest part. I love it. And then you have to go back and make it right. And because even if I'm using all real players, I have to make a convincing mock-up and yeah. demo of it to show people. So... That's a big part of the job. And I learn a lot when I'm doing that, too. Mm -hmm. So whether it's an orchestra, which I don't do that often, but when I do, you got to do that. And if it's just a rhythm section coming over or weird ethnic instruments. And, I mean, that's such a great part. I've had such a great relationship with all the musicians. And um, some from the beginning of my career, like George Deering. I don't know if you know about George. Do you? Mm -mm. Well, uh, someone should give him more credit. He is probably unarguably the most used studio musician ever, not just in Los Angeles. And he plays on every movie, every TV show. And we all like sort of count on him. Like I'll make a claim to the producer of something I can do. And then I say, well, what if George is in England with Tom Newman next yeah. week, you know? And when George leaves for England, he didn't even travel um, uh, until a few years ago when he started doing the James Bond things with Tom Newman. And he'd go like, Hey, what's England like? <laughs> he, you know, he 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 does four studio sessions a day most days, including Sundays. And it, I'll call him up, and he'll call me back eleven thirty at night, and he's practicing. Mm -hmm. For the years where he only practiced mandolin, sometimes he was practicing ouds. And uh, well, I'll tell you, the first time I met him was the first time Northern Exposure. So in the seventh episode. I walk into the offices of Northern Exposure, and when we, I'd always go there to spot. And I see Josh, the creator of the show. Um, he says, have you see, seen the show yet? I said, no, that's what I'm coming in to do now. He says, well, it's really bad. Can you get a really big orchestra, like 150 different people? And I said, 
Uh, Josh, I've never done it. I'm going to tell you that. It's the truth now, but 150 is a lot. I know that. He says, mm-hmm. well, get whatever is the right amount of a lot, yeah, you know, which doesn't ever happen anymore. It did on The Good Place. That happened a few times. But uh, and get an orchestra and, and you know, it's, it's going to be a Western. And we had never done Western. I mean, there was Americana to the show anyway. And so here I had a week to do an orchestra. Uh, and uh, I got the Sony stage and I called my friend Phil Giffen, who lives down the street from me, still a really good friend. And I said, will you help me orchestrate this? And we'd stay up all night doing it. But I incorrectly assumed that the guitarist would not be, it featured, it was for orchestra and slide guitar, which is a mm-hmm. weird, you know, uh, combination anyway, acoustic slide guitar. And I figured it would be easier on the guitarist reading wise if he came to my studio and I wouldn't have to worry about that with the orchestra. Little did I know that George is probably the best reader you'll ever meet in the world and is, does that all the time and everyone knows it. <laughs> but he came in and I had this tiny little garage with a closet that he went into. And he does the first piece, which is two minutes. Which I had a, the mock orchestra and he plays all the slide stuff. And I'm thinking like, wow, this is so good. I'm going to have to ask him to make it a little worse. So, so you could hear the slides more yeah, yeah. on the next take, like just do it a little bit funkier. And he comes out of the booth, he says, that's really great music. He says, you meant it to be in 3-4, right? And so I was using an early version of Digital Performer, which didn't, it just printed it out as 4-4. Mm-hmm. So I'm going like, this guy has a mind that's wow, he way, read it. Yeah. way past a mind that he said, I just figured where the bar lines would be. Like, wow. still couldn't. <laughs> he can hear time code. All right, mm-hmm. enough about George. But if you start, now you'll start hearing his name and you'll, yeah, and he's yeah. also, by all agreements, the nicest person in the world. And the I love that when that happens. It's just, just amazing. And there's so many other great guitarists in LA and sometimes I get to use them too, but we have a special, in fact, it got to a point where we were doing so many shows that I'm saying, well, this sounds like my writing and George is playing. What can I do? So mm-hmm. I'd start handing him a guitar lefty. He's a righty, you know, and I'd go like, here, try this. And he'd just go, oh, he never said like, I'm right here. We shouldn't do that. And they were perfectly great takes and slightly different than if he had played it. Wow. He can play every instrument. So it's, it's annoying in a way. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, just... So this is after 25 years of working with him. He recently picked up an upright bass in my studio. And after 10 oh. minutes, he was very good. That's very annoying. good. That's annoying. Like like possibly better than other people. <laughs> and I, I go, is that the first time you played? He said, yeah, this is fun. He's from San Diego, and he just is music. It's just fascinating to me. And uh, now we're working remotely. It's nice, but not the same. But Yeah. Uh- and um, I remember meeting the great jazz player and trumpet player, Snooky Young. And I told him the story I earlier told you about Bernie Glow, and he started crying. Mm. That's why I knew how great Bernie was. Uh, you wow. know, I remember him before. There was a period in New York where all those studio musicians had a choice to move with Johnny Carson to the West Coast or stay in New York. Bernie stayed in New York. Um, Snooky came out here and did yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, so. That's really cool. Um, also, um, I have t- at least two more questions, but how do you deal with, especially now, now that you've been doing this quite a long time with cr- like, I guess, criticism, um, you know, from producers and things like that. And are you more prepared to have certain things ready? Like, do you, do you have a lot of things for people to choose from or just a, a small amount of things now, or just the one, one, uh, thing to choose from? Well, 
That's a really good question, and and it's one that can be answered different ways. I know a lot of people who always present three options, certainly when they're auditioning for the job. And I feel that there's one right option most of the time, but if I just don't know, like, well, what, The Good Place, which is, you know, one of my favorite shows, I, I have many favorites, Arrested Development, Not an Exposure, but, and they all operate totally differently. Um, but, you know, I went to the meeting with them, and there's usually five or six of them and one of you. So, you know, you're just trying, can I remember their names would be yeah. <laughs> a success. And they were telling me they didn't like music, and they only asked me questions about Deadwood, which is a drama. And I said, wait a minute, my agent said this is a comedy. Oh, yeah, but we, we want to hear David Mills' stories. Yeah. And then I left, and then this never happens. It's like A lot of times you think you have the job, and then you're really wrong. They're mm -hmm. acting like your biggest fan but they're going to meet other people and somebody else gets hired and uh so i think before i even got home from the valley um my agent called me and said they want you to do it and usually there's an audition process where you write maybe for a week or two free music and you know you try to get the job and um and i said okay but then i realized that there was this first piece in the pilot that's two and a half minutes maybe it was three minutes when we started before it got cut down and i It was clear that this was my audition, whether it was said or not. And the show, it, it was a pilot, but we were guaranteed a full season, which is also mm -hmm. because usually most pilots fail in the pilot season, which is just horrendous, you know, to go through. And because nobody knows, you know, everyone's competing very hard and there's not a lot of guidance. And music gets really bashed by criticism in pilot seasons by everybody, mm -hmm. people who are part of the show and not part of the show, everyone, you know. It's the one thing they can change after the fact. Yeah. Um, but this was picked up, and, and I liked them so much, and I really wanted to do well. So I think I wrote 10 pieces, none of which were quite right. They were very nice. Said, well, this is really good. We like this part of it. And the final piece sort of became a combination of those 10 pieces, or mm -hmm. seven of them had value in there. But then, even though they had rejected the 10 and whole, they became big themes in part of the show. I'd come mm -hmm. in the third episode and the editor had placed them in there. And I said, oh, should I replace that? And they go, well, you can try, but we're going to like this. And so that's a common thing. Yeah. And sometimes I'm really motivated. I say, like, I love this piece. I wrote it, but it doesn't feel right for the scene to me. And then I have to have this epic battle with myself. And sometimes, you know, Mike Sher in this case or other producers will go like, Uh, yeah, but we still like the original. <laughs> and so you're trying to top yourself in a way or write something different or you feel differently because you wrote it in a different mood or the scene was different to you. Mm -hmm. Change characters with the scene, which if I do, someone might say, oh, you know, you wrote that for her, but now it's for him. But sometimes they'll do the same thing. It's, I won't say that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. And then there are certain scenes where I feel like Well, the show Rutherford Falls, what I'm doing right now, um, I have co-composers. They're the indigenous hip-hop band from Canada, um, tribe called Red, who have now changed their name just in the last few days to Hallucination, Hallucination. And they called me and said, "Are you? Would you? We want you, but we want you to work with an indigenous because the show is really about that culture a lot, mm -hmm. half the show." And that's worked great. You know, we've just become a team and I didn't know how it was going to work. Sometimes we pass stuff back and forth, but usually they write their stuff. They're in Canada. 
uh, I write my stuff. I wrote the the theme with my daughter, which was just incredible. Um, and she, she's some one of those musicians. She just comes in and the first thing out of her mouth, singing or playing, <laughs> better than almost anyone I know. And we actually ended up writing twenty main titles, and they went back to that one, which was disgusting. Wow. But <laughs> in the end, and and. and the guys in Tribe or Hallucinations you know, added their thing to it, so it became, you know, an effort of everybody, and it, it's so great that way, and we love that, that that's the way that's working out. But what I was trying to get at, there's also four producers, Ed Holmes, starts the show, uh, Sierra Teller, who is Native and Mexican half and half, and Mike Scherer, who created The Good Place and a million other shows, and our editor, Eric Kisek, and... Uh, so in the first meetings, which were our first Zoom meetings that, you know, I had been on big music meetings, um, shockingly, they all had very different opinions about music. Hmm. And they could brilliantly do a dissertation on why their choices were the right ones. And they all had different kinds of music they liked. And they're all the nicest people in the world. And they're so nice that they never say, no, we're going to do it my way. Mm-hmm. So especially the first couple of episodes, I would do each cue a few different ways and get opinions on it because nobody took control of the room at first. Mm-hmm. That sort of just worked its way out in, it, in the same way that the music did. It just cooperated. But I just watched the whole thing again with my family. And the first episode is really good, even though we were working it out. I'm proud of the music. So, and then with the rest of development, it's sort of the opposite experience. Mitch never has, Mitch Hurwitz, who is the genius who created it, and one of my favorite people. Um, he never has the time to listen to the music. He always swears he's going to. So I show up on the stage mm-hmm. when we're putting it in the show, finally. And he'll do crazy things with it. He'll add twice as much. He knows every piece I've ever written by name. I don't at all. He can sing it all. I can't do any of that. Or he'll say stuff like, oh, that's really good. You remember that piece in season one where uh, somebody's walking into the gym and we could add that to it. And mm. mixers would always look at me like, you're not going <laughs> to. Yeah. Let's go through this exercise. And he'd be right. It would mm. match tempo and pitch and, and key. And, you know, and uh, it's just a different kind of genius. And uh, we'd all work really hard, but we'd all be laughing all the time. And, but he would change the music a lot on the stage and still does. Wow. And- yeah, that's what I w- would love to talk about, Arrested Development. Well, he always makes it better. Um, yeah, it, it's so wacky. It's hard to remember everything that happened in Arrested Development. And um, I was an original. I think I was maybe twelve or th- twelve or thirteen when that came out, and I was watching it. Uh, it was on, when it was on TV. Oh, that's risky stuff for your age group. My kids did too. So we <laughs> were the same same age as Michael Sarah, or maybe a year younger. Um, yeah. And um, and some of the kid actors on the show. Um, I had met Mitch at a real low point in, in my career, or I just was struggling. I wasn't working a lot. After Northern Exposure, people were saying stuff like, oh, yeah, we'll call you if we have a moose show, you know? <laughs> and they didn't know what to do because I didn't do doctor shows. I still mm-hmm. haven't done a doctor show. <laughs> I haven't done a procedural. You know, I, when I've done action dramas, they've either been about the devil or Westerns. I don't know how that happens. I don't seek either of those yeah. out. Uh, I've done some Cuban drama things. Anyway, um, so 
someone called, my agent called at the time, uh, not my current agent, but said, oh, they want you to do this last season. They were interested in meeting you for the, for the John Larroquette show in its last season. But, you know, you shouldn't do it because it's a sitcom. And, you know, then you'll be branded. And I said, and other people would tell me the opposite. You know, yeah. really people there, you should do it. And, um, and Mitch was that guy I, I came into. Um, I'm trying to remember the story. I don't, I don't want to drag your time out too long. But uh, oh, I'd sent in a year before to Whit Thomas, which is the production company that Mitch used to work for. And I knew a musician, he was a saxophone player that we used to jam. Um, and he called me and said, um, we're looking for a new show and it's eight seconds long, the theme. And the one that sounds most like Bruce Springsteen is going to get the gig. And I never say no, yeah. but I said, no, <laughs> I, said, I don't know. I'm just going to send you my reel, man. You know, yeah. you're a great guy here. I'm going to send you my reel. And if you find something interesting on it. So I never heard anything back on that. And, it's funny because Mitch and I have done interviews and his story is has nothing to do with my story. They're like, one of us must be totally fictional. But I remember him saying he was looking in the in the storage closet for some cleaning supplies at Whit Thomas. And he had gone through all these composers, you know, in town he didn't like. They weren't right for him. And he's looking around for some cleaner in the in the storage room. Right. And he sees a cassette and it has my name on. It. He doesn't know who I am. Mm-hmm. He listens to me, he says, oh, yeah, let's get this guy. <laughs> so he listens to this music. And uh, and, w- and he was acting like like I was doing the show already when I got there. And it turned out to be the case. And that year, I mean, the John Larroquette was an old-fashioned sitcom. Well, was, I shouldn't say that. It was a really interesting sitcom. But the music was, was it could be one note. In fact, after the first episode, um, I, I got a, a note from him saying, can we have more one-note cues? Wow. I just wrote on a piece of paper, Bob Shepard was coming in and, mm-hmm. and clarinet was the lead instrument in the show. And it just said, play a note, any note, Bob. <laughs> but you have to do something with one note, you know? Yeah, of course. You have to, we tried to do the gliss from uh, Rhapsody in Blue kind of things. We tried to bend notes, you know, because how can you make... It's, it's a really interesting intellectual and musical exercise to do yeah. that. So... Um, and then we finished that season and um, I went to my local gym and there was Mitch. And, um, and he said, I saw he was on this machine. He looked like he'd been on it for days. You know, <laughs> this kind of, yeah. press, I don't know what kind of press that is. And I said, how are you doing? He says, yeah, I got really out of shape. I'm just going to stay here until I get in shape. And I said, this is it's my new best friend. Yeah. And it sort of happened, uh, you know, after we had done, he called me for arrested and the script was just, I knew it was funny, but it was like so hard to read. It was so dense with so much stuff. And um, we did the pilot and I wrote all the music for the pilot. And um, he said, um, look, there's going to be like 20 or 30 people from the network here. They're going to have all, they're going to want it to sound like pop music. They're going to want it to sound like 80s. Just try not to say anything. And then we'll do our music afterwards, which mm-hmm. Another thing that just never happened, I'm looking for my drink, here it is. Um, and that's exactly what happened. There was two hours, maybe three hours, we filled the whole theater of everyone who had an opinion about the music and why it should change. <laughs> and it might have had some influence. I think Mitch, like most of the really great showrunners that I do, know how to take notes and find what's useful in it. And you can't 
kind of say no anymore. Maybe when I started, they could do that. And then the music of the pilot of that is radically different than the episode. And um, oh, so about that time, I went for my anniversary. The first time my wife and I had gone away since we had kids and they were little. My mother came out from New York and stayed with our kids. And we went for barely five days to Bora Bora, which is actually not that hard to get to. It's a pretty mm-hmm. easy flight. It's not much. It's actually nicer than going to New York, even because you know you're going to Bora Bora. And the, oh, the, I know, right? <laughs> the plane has the Polynesian atmosphere yeah. built into it. And um, the first night we went to, you know, most of the hotels are on islands there, on Motu as they call them. And I heard this sound coming out of the bar and we were supposed to be in dinner and I said oh please let's go check out this sound and there was a trio in there with a guy playing baritone uke get what the third instrument was but there was this there was a, a Tahitian uke which is the sound of arrested development and it was so loud and the guy playing it was just a huge Polynesian warrior kind of guy and um, I, won't, I won't play the instrument but I'll show it to you yeah please because um, it's way out of tune But it, it, it kind of looks like an electric guitar. Can you see it now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So you can imagine a guy who's like three times as wide as me. And there's the sound hole. So it's again, oh. right? But it's like really loud. And, and he was playing like a lead guitarist. Mm-hmm. So we waited until they finished it, took a set break. And I talked to him and we tried French. That didn't work for very long. <laughs> his French was better than his English, but my French is terrible. And I can't speak Polynesian. Uh, so, uh, I asked him about it and then I said, can you get one? He says, yeah, there's a guy on, on Bora Bora, the island, which is a boat trip away and I'll get one tomorrow. And every night he'd come in, there were only five nights, I guess. And there would be, well, he was fishing, you know, oh, his mother said he was going to be there, but he wasn't, you know? So the final night he says, come on in the morning, come with me, uh, you know, uh, and we'll get, and I said, great, but you know. I'm flying out and I just want to sort of spend the last day just being a tourist. And my wife did not allow that. To yeah. <laughs> you got to get, she's always telling me the right stuff. And, um, so, uh, we get, he had the smallest car, like a t- Toyota to sell. And he's a, just a huge guy. And he's very proud of that. He had, um, burned Madonna CDs. And so he was playing that really loud for us and it's sweltering in the car and we drive completely around to the other side of the island and there's two women in their 20s, I guess the the luthier's daughters, and they're playing ping pong on a ping pong table about this big. Mm-hmm. Competitive, like yeah. it's a serious game, but they don't know that their ping pong table is a quarter of the size. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, I he says to them and he says, you know, oh yeah, my father said, but he's not here, you know, but maybe it's inside. So they go inside and they come out with this instrument. And now I realize, oh, I don't know what they're going to charge me, but whatever yeah. it is, this is now you know, my responsibility. Yeah. You're <laughs> Favors have been put out and uh, it was only, it was a small amount of money and, uh, and it was incredibly beautiful. And, um, and the guy, the, the musician from the hotel would not take any payment, would not buy him lunch, uh, would not, um, Anything. So he drives us back to the ferry, and as the ferry's about to get off, he gives me his shirt, like off his back. It was like a reggae shirt or something like that, you know, a tank top. Was, yeah. Won't talk about the condition, but uh, and and he gives me his beads, and I'm going like, no, I should be paying you. This is not right. And the boat's now 15 feet 
off the dock. And he says, I could really use a Kamaka baritone ukulele, uh, <laughs> which is a very expensive instrument. So I figured I'm going to buy it. And then I, there was one guy on the island who, 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 in the States who I knew. And I said, what do you think about this? He says, it's a very you know, cultural thing. He says, if you get him a gift, he will super appreciate it. And yeah. don't you have to buy him a $2,000 ukulele. And uh, I went to McCabe's in LA and they had a really nice baritone ukulele. It wasn't the Kamaka. And I sent him that and some American records and some percussion instruments. And he would like thank me every year for a few years. And then we lost touch and I haven't been back to Bora Bora. That's a very long way of describing the music. But <laughs> that, no, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, and then in that first session for Arrested Development, um, uh, the network called, oh, Mitch needs a logo, music for his logo. It's 1.5 seconds long. Can we pick it up? Like, it, you know, there are people who think it's on a shelf somewhere. Yeah. So I basically hand this to George Deering, and he comes up with a couple of ideas. And Mitch calls me. Two hours later, he says, what is that? And I said, what are you talking about? He says, I love my logo. What's the sound? And he doesn't remember because I, I went bike riding with the other day. He doesn't remember this the same way at all. Wow. And um, and I said, it's a Tahitian ukulele. Do you like it? He said, yeah, let's use it on everything. And so I added it to the theme, which was also, which was being written at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's Mitch. So he, he, he heard the theme and said, I love that. I think that could be our theme. Can you add more stuff to it? And then this happened five or six times. And the theme, to this day, I can't believe how much stuff is in it. And then there was one season where we added something extra every episode. Like there'd be trombone. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he never hears anything as being too much. So you can never be too busy. And I'm always fighting that side of me. Hmm. That simplicity and sparseness yeah. in everything in life. <laughs> but it, he loves the busyness. And he'll play music really loud with dialogue, Ron Howard talking over it, buses going by, you know, everything that you could possibly imagine, he makes it work. That's why our mixes go to three or four in the morning sometimes. Wow. So much stuff in there. And he's thinking of new stuff. Mm. He's thinking of new lines when we're printing the final, you know, video master and stuff like that. And somehow we'll find a way to get them in there. Too. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. I mean, the music is such an integral part of the show. It's, you know, gives it that extra, I mean, it's, it's, it's my favorite show, I'd have to say, but it's, uh, it's already quirky on its own. And then your music just completely elevates it and adds well, color and texture. Definitely a dream job and getting to do all that, you know, I started to do the swing stuff, but with George playing the Django parts, or sometimes it was way more American than Django would apply, but, you know, very complicated melodies that he had to play on ukuleles. And it was always... You know, he had to figure out a way to do it, whether he'd use the baritone uke or retune something. Because, I mean, there are now, um, who's the young Hawaiian uke player who's, I th they call him the Jimi Hendrix of the ukulele. Do you know who I'm talking about? I do. And I don't <laughs> remember their name. Anyway, uh, it's so great. And, uh, but, you know, to have that much fun. And it was always like just a crazy show and always great fun. So, <laughs> I got to have so many musicians on that and never as many as you'd want because big bands had to be done usually with a brass player, reed player, yeah. drummer and me, you know, and sometimes I'd get a piano player who could really play piano, not like my piano player. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Well, well, thank you for your comments on that. But that, that's how I feel about it. And uh, Mitch is a creative force, and you always just wanted him. But he would never listen to music, so it was very interesting. And I, um, I think he was a lot more there for writers. So my job was, you know, for the script writers when they have a room, mm -hmm. my job was unique freedom if I didn't mind him doing a lot of final editing and moving things around. I think yeah. you, know, you spend a lot of time spotting any show. And on the stage, I'm always shocked by how much, you know, it moves. Mm -hmm. Sometimes better, sometimes I prefer the original placement. But they, I mean, that's really the trick of it. Thinking about story all the time. It's not that different than being a singer, right? Yeah. You're, you're trying to tell a story, right? A bass player is trying to tell a story. So if you can think story instead of technique or I wrote this and this should stay this way. Mm-hmm. That, that's when you get into trouble or worse yeah, the yet. ego yeah i'm an artiste no one can mess with my music yeah <laughs> i can think of the time you know early on in my career people were telling me that a lot and then it, you know it's trouble it's just trouble yeah there's a difference between your your ego your artistic ego and then your emotions that's yeah. three different things yeah yeah no all those are true and so you know telling the story is the most important. and when i get off track i try mm. to of that you know and or i just go back and watch the scene again after i've written it and i go like oh this is really good music but totally wrong oh, yeah. <laughs> but usually i don't have to do there's usually not time to scrub it so it's very mm -hmm. much going with your first thought which is really fun yes. yeah for me that's usually my best my right. best thought was the first one uh, i don't want to take up too much more of your time david but uh what are you what are you working on right now um I'm working on, well, it's kind of secret, but the, <laughs> I don't have a gig in front of me, so I'm in that thing. I, I, I'm really hoping that Rutherford Falls, I mean, I just finished Rutherford Falls, so we, we, you know, we talked about that a little bit. Really great experience, and I, I hope we come back again. Um, tomorrow, uh, and I don't know how that works, we're doing the music team, you know, Hallucination, who was Tribe Called Red, and Ed Helms and I are having uh, a live Instagram live thing for I don't know how long that goes on. I have to learn how to sign in. To, I've, have you done Instagram live? I have. I sometimes I just go live actually to push myself to I'll just play just start playing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I'm back to practicing bass a lot. Uh, I have projects with both my kids. Uh, you know, my daughter who's a great singer songwriter in her own right. And she's, you know, sort of been saying, well, when I get done, I can work on these with you and I co produce and mix her st stuff and uh, she's really amazing, and which is now she's doing other things, screenwriting and other things. So it's taken into her music time. And my son just became the creative head. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this. Um, uh, 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 <laughs> you don't even know what you're allowed to talk about what your own kids are doing, but you know, he, he's working for an AI company. Oh, cool! And, and we're trying to understand. It's just been a couple of weeks, so I've just done a couple of little musical things for him, which is really fun. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to sort of freshen up the studio, which, you know, is still a great studio, but could use, there's a, a few hundred thousand extra wires that can be removed now and yeah. stuff, and new floors, windows, and carpets. Silly stuff, but that's that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And a lot of photography. That's what I, that's sort of my other passion. I'll do that. Oh, that's awesome. I, okay, I guess I do have one more. It's not really a tiny question, but it could be tiny. Um, and maybe it's different because you do a lot of TV and film, but how do you get through, how do you work through not being inspired or for lack of a better term, writer's block, you know, when you have a deadline? 
I've often said, and I'm probably incorrect that I don't get it very often, that I'm lucky in that way. The hardest thing for me is like finishing a piece that started, but that's a kind of writer's block in itself mm. because you know, there you have the start. Why can't you finish it? You know, it's not finished. I'll get to the end. That's the thing I learned. I'll try to write one line. If it's two minutes long. I'll try it in that first pass to get halfway through or all the way through and then fill the other ideas around it. Uh, but then there are shows that it's like when people say, oh, we've tried everyone in town. We've tried every kind of music. You try it. You know, that <laughs> that's, that's tough, you know, or, you know, they've gone through a couple of composers and, you know, there's different factors. So there are things that can, you know, throw me. Um, it, it's really go with your gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just put my hands down on the piano and something. And I go, is this really something? Or did I write it? Or did someone else write it? Those kind of feelings. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I never imagined myself to be a writer, but that seems to what that and visual stuff comes more naturally to me than, and um, so I, I guess I just get through it. I don't have any, I don't know if there's any real tricks for it. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, you know, a lot of songwriters say, well, I wait till the muse strikes and that's not an option. So, um, yeah. you know, it, it's just got to be there. So the deadline really is your friend in that way. It doesn't allow you to sit around and wait for inspiration. You've got to write something. And I guess what I do a lot is I'll write something. I'll look back after an hour and I'll say, well, that sucks. And then I don't, sometimes I scrap it, but more often I find a way to make it what I feel my gut intended it to be. Mm -hmm. Sort of go with that. And that makes it sound smoother than it is, but it's not. And new shows are always... Um, I think my friend uh, Gabriel Mann said, like, uh, every comedy wants you to have music that's never been heard before, hmm. and every drama wants it to sound like all the other dramas. That's a, that's a wild. No, I, I can get <laughs> with that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> is there some comfort to that? To yeah, both yeah, sides yeah. of those things. Yeah, and and you know when you're writing ten scary music, there's certain things that you know we know work, and the people who can really step out of that box and do something different these days. Um, uh, Hildegar, I'm saying her name incorrectly, did Batman. You know, oh, came yeah, yeah. Totally different way of doing it and uh, and in, in all her scores, and she's great. And there's always new people that are inspiring, and, you know, you hear that, you go like, wow, that's great. You know, where are they from? Icelandic. Iceland. Yeah. There's some music from there, and this incredible pop, and I, I assume jazz coming from Iceland, and scene in Israel and seems to be incredible. They're creating unbelievable TV in Australia. And, and, uh, yeah. And I try to go to see a lot of live music. That's not possible. Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, um, and and see as many shows that, that always inspires me too, if I have the time to, and it was, you know, with the blue whale and, um, Sam's first, you know, Mm -hmm. there were, Really nice options in town, and hope we get we get them back. You know, the blue whales. Yeah. I hope that June finds another venue, and it'll come to- back in in some shape or form. Is this L.A.? I don't think people realize the amount of unbelievable music scenes, and you, you can work in it forever and still find whole new pockets of people who are doing yeah stuff, just like New York. You know. Yeah, but I love L.A. <laughs> You've made a choice to be here, which is the unusual choice for that's true for the jazz musician because it's just a plane flight away, David. 
Right. No, I know. Yeah. And it's identified to Japan too, but exactly. It, you you will say that there's something to the New York jazz scene, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. It's, of course. But you know, you work everywhere, so that's great. <laughs> I'm a big fan of what you do. And I hope to come see you live when when it happens. Oh, thank you. Um Wow, this has been so much fun. This has been such a treat to meet you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, it was great. I enjoyed your questions and uh, I hope uh, we got some good results. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And I'm so glad I got to hear because I know exactly the one and a half second uh, clip of the of the uke right there. Oh, yeah, that credit goes more to George. Of course, he wouldn't take it, but yeah. you know, or or even the publishing on it. And I think I put it on it anyway, but I, I'm not sure he would take it. Yeah. It's really, you got to look him up. We gotta, yeah, I will, you, I will. You would do one with him. That would be very cool. He really is a legend. And uh, if, if you decide to, I will put heavy pressure on him to do it. <laughs> <laughs> he probably will say no. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Thanks so much, David. I really appreciate it. And I hope, I hope you uh, start working soon. Uh, I will be. Yeah. And, uh, I have to think that way. Uh, thank you so much. It was really a joy.